Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you took the time to listen to this message. You're listening to the second in our series called Jesus Is. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. This is John chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him as he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now they're of course using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, some will say, but Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first until only Jesus was left. How many guys know it is only when it's just Jesus in our lives that he begins to do amazing things. When it was just Jesus left, the woman was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go and leave your life of sin. Can we just clap our hands for the word of God this morning? So good. Hey, so glad you guys could all be here. Everyone uh, in the building, everyone watching online. I believe no matter where you are, no matter when you're listening to this, to our podcast family, uh, I believe this is a special moment in time because I believe that God wants to speak to us. Now, uh, just a, a really quick thing. I know Andrell asked us in the MC time, but how many guys were here or able to listen uh, to part one of our series called Jesus Is? Just make some noise right now. So good, so good. What this series is about, this series is for anyone that wants to know who Jesus is. I just happen to believe, and maybe I'm biased, but I just happen to believe that Jesus is the most influential. I believe he's the best person in the, human, in, the, in the history of humanity. But even more than that, if you were uh, with us last week, we learned that Jesus is even more than a person. Jesus is God. And so not only is Jesus my homeboy, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus lived a perfect life, and because he lived a perfect life, I don't have to. Come on, somebody. That was last week. Jesus is God. That was the blank we filled in. And so I encourage you, if you missed it, uh, everything's online. Uh, catch up. This week, I want to dive into another characteristic of Jesus, another very important characteristic, and I believe that much in the same way that Jesus is God was fundamental, this is as fundamental. And so this week, I want to look at the idea that Jesus is love. Jesus is love. 
Now, if you're new to church, if your first time here, maybe you don't have a long history in church or maybe you've been in church for a long time, but I would wager to guess, no matter where you fall on the scale, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, I would wager to believe most of us have heard this saying before, Jesus is love or God is love. And again, if you were here last week, we know that God and Jesus is interchangeable. I could have called this series God is or Jesus is. It wouldn't have mattered. But you've probably heard the saying, Jesus is love, or God is love. And so, although all of us have heard this saying, I'm sure, the reality is every single one of us has a different idea of what that means based on what our definition of love is. Right? And so, what I want to do this morning, I want to show that Jesus is love, but I want to give us a definition for that love. Because it's not enough just to say, Jesus is love. We need to understand what love is. And so very simply, let's just, let's just, I'm going to take us on a journey this morning and we're going to get back to this story in a moment because I believe in this story, love is personified, but I first want us to understand something. So this is like the, the Webster's definition of love, the dictionary.com, come on somebody, definition of love. And, and so it says this, love is just a strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. So it's like, okay, love is that strong feeling. So, so this sets us in a direction. This must be what love is. This, this, this makes it all make sense, kind of. Because like, I don't know about you guys, but like I have a lot of things in my life that I have strong affections towards. I love sports. Like I love Tiger Woods. Come on, somebody. And I know a lot of people in this room, you would say, I love the Edmonton Oilers. I'm loyal to the oil. I love the Oilers. So, like, is that the feeling that Jesus is talking about? Is that what it means when we say Jesus is love? It's this strong. Listen, I have a strong affection towards Mexican food. I love tacos. Come on, somebody. My El Salvadorian friends, I love pupusas. Like, I just, but, like, is that, like, is that the same thing? Is that, like, what Jesus is talking about when he says that Jesus is Love, like, is it just that, that feeling, that, that strong affection? And so, like, that kind of sets us in a direction, but the reality is, if we have that picture, if that's our definition of love, there's a whole lot of things in life that we love, and it's really hard to differentiate when we say that Jesus is love. Because, like, I don't think it's the same as tacos. Now, thankfully, the Bible clarifies some things, and like I said in the story, we're going to get to it in a second, I believe it shows it, but I love what 1 John, and we're going to read a whole bunch of books written by the Apostle John, because we're talking about love. And John himself calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I know, weird flex, but that's what he called himself. And so he speaks a whole lot about love. But in 1 John chapter 4, he says this. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In other words, if you don't have love in your heart, if you are not loving, if love is not coming out of you, you probably don't know God because God is love. He says, in this love, the love of God, it was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. So we learn two things very, very important. The first thing that we learn is that it says God is love. Jesus is love. But what you need to understand is it does not say God is loving. It literally says God is love. In other words, God is the definition of love. And it's like, okay, what's God like? Second half, he says, well, that's where Jesus comes in. 
He says, Jesus was sent, Jesus was made manifest the love of God. The love of God is personified through Jesus. So if you want to know what love is, I look to Jesus. I look at his life. I look at his everything. And so Jesus is the definition of love. And so that's why I want to look at this story found in John chapter 8, because I believe it gives us definition of love. And I believe when we can fully understand the love of Jesus, it will change everything. Everything. So John chapter 8, I'll give us a little context, because what we're going to do this morning, uh, I'm I'm very simply just going through this story, and I'm going to take some things out of it. But in John chapter 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus is at the temple, uh, and and he's teaching, and he's preaching. And uh, I kind of want to just paint a mental picture for us. Now, what you need to know is that this is a story that is kind of controversial in the history of church. There's actually periods in our church history, like the long 2000 broad church history, where this story was kind of like, hey, let's, let's, let's push this to the side. Like, let's not talk about this story. Because for a lot of people, they looked at the, the behavior and the actions of Jesus, and they're like, yo, that's kind of even too scandalous for Jesus. And so there's a picture in a period of church history where they kind of just tried to ignore this story. But thankfully, here we are 2,000 years later, and we have it. And I'm glad we have it because it's one of my favorite in the Bible. And I believe it personifies the love of Jesus. So Jesus was teaching and he was preaching at the temple. And it was early in the morning. And so if you want to have a picture in this day and age, it's almost like Jesus was in church. But Jesus is the preacher. Jesus is, 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 is the one who is speaking. And the Bible says that as Jesus spoke, crowds flocked to him. And the reason that, that the crowds surrounded Jesus when he spoke is because when Jesus spoke, it was unlike anything people had ever heard before. Why? Because Jesus is God. And so literally God was speaking to them. Listen, I believe God speaks through me, but like I'm also here, right? Like there's still some Harrison here. Like you guys, you see it sometimes. It's like, wow, he said that in church. That was, that was Harrison, not God. Jesus, literally, Jesus is God. And so when he spoke, it was different. It was unlike anything that people had ever experienced. And so it says this. It says, at dawn, in John chapter 8, verse 2, it said, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And Jesus sat down to preach. Now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and so these are kind of like, these are the religious people of the time. If you want to have a picture, it's almost like these are like the priests or or the pastors. These are the religious dudes. These are the ones that followed God. He says, these people brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. So I need us to see this picture. The religious people, the pastors, the ones that represented a God who is love. You need us to see that. The ones that represented God, they bring this woman who was caught in adultery, and they put her before the group. And if you're not painting the picture, I'll paint it for you. It's kind of like this, and I'm glad this has never happened when I'm preaching. But someone is literally brought into the midst, and so every single person now has to see this woman who was caught in this heinous act. And more than anything, the language that the Bible uses is letting us know something. It's letting us know that the reason she was caught in the act is because there was some kind of setup going on. This whole thing was brought together just to humiliate this woman. And so most people said, we don't even know if she would have had any clothes on at this point. Like she was literally caught in the act. She might have had time for for a, for a sheet or something. But it's just literally this humiliating moment. And the people that brought her here are the religious people, the people that represent 
God, the God who is love. I don't know about you guys, but it's kind of not adding up. Now, we don't know the full details because the Bible doesn't give them to us. But when it comes to adultery and affair or cheating, whatever you want it to be, um, I'm not sure about you guys, but it usually takes two to tango. It's not a one-man job. In this case, it's actually a zero-man job because only the woman's here. It's just the woman who's brought before because she's the easy target. Where's the man? I'll get to that in a second. But I'm painting this picture, and the Bible says that Jesus said, or they said to Jesus, they made her stand before the group. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? So I need us to understand this scene because there's a great tension that if we don't know it, we'll miss it. You see, what I told you is that people flocked to Jesus when he spoke. And so when Jesus would teach and Jesus would preach, people would surround him, religious and the irreligious alike. But at this time for the Jewish people, the religious leaders, they had this power. And so Jesus was seen as this figure that could threaten the power. Because you need to understand something. Where Jesus goes, religion does not follow. Jesus and religion do not mix. They cannot mix. In fact, I would put it like this. Jesus is the greatest threat to religion that religion has. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, the religious people are saying, oh my gosh, this is a threat. This could be the end of us. This could be the end of our religious institution. And so what they do, they've set up this trap. And here's the tension. Because they're trying to, to, to get Jesus caught. You see, the reality of I've described this moment with this woman and it's humiliating. But perhaps what makes it even less than human is that the people aren't even worried about the woman. She's actually just a pawn in their game because they're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to catch him slipping. And so what they're saying, they're saying, hey, this woman was caught in adultery, caught in the act. The law says to stone her, what do we do? So here's the dilemma. Now you need to understand something when it comes to adultery, an affair, cheating, whatever you want to, to, to use the word. Now, nowhere in here does it say it's okay. I would go as far as to say this sin is a heinous sin. When, when, when two people do this or two or more, whatever it looks like, I would even say there is perhaps no more sexual sin, more um, heinous, more far-reaching that has such an impact on every single person involved, the families involved. There is nothing such like this sin when it comes to adultery. I want us to understand this. What this woman did was not okay. And so they say, what do we do? Because the word of God says stone her. It says stone her. Now, I want this to, to cause us to pause because although we know this act is not a good act, like you even talk to people that have no sense of morality, no, no sense of religion, even they'll probably agree like, yeah, cheating's wrong, right? Like it doesn't take much. But, but the part that I want us to make us pause is it says the Bible, um, it says that they said that the religious leaders say, hey, the law says that we need to stone her. Now, what they're doing is they're quoting the book of Exodus, which is also in the Bible in the Old Testament. And so I want this to cause us to pause because I want us to ask ourselves, wait a second, why would God put that in the Bible? Now, this is really important because for a lot of people, when it comes to hard things in the Bible, they either, number one, skim it, or number two, become very confused, give up on faith, and peace out altogether. But I say let's actually dig in deep. 
Why would this be in there? Because what they're, and so here's the dilemma. I'm still getting a dilemma. I'll get there. The dilemma is this. Jesus, if he says, let her go, he's breaking the law. He's going against the word of God. I thought he's a messenger of God. How can he go against the word of God? So if he says, hey, be gone, you're free. Jesus is in trouble and the religious leaders have reason to try him. Now, on the other hand, because here's the dilemma. If he says, execute them, what you need to know about the Roman people at this time is that the Romans had taken away the powers from Jewish people to, to carry out execution. That's why when you read the story of Jesus, the religious leaders have to send him to Pilate and to Caesar because only they can actually execute people. So if Jesus says, yeah, let's follow the law, let's kill her, the religious people would have sent him to the Romans and be like, hey, this guy's causing anarchy. Are you guys following? And so Jesus is caught in between a rock and a hard place. It's a lose-lose situation. It almost appears as if God is trapped. It's like those people that say, hey, what, what, what about this one? Like, could God create a rock so big that he himself could not lift it? I think I've caught God this time. <laughs> now, I don't know how God would answer that one, but what I do know is that you cannot trap God because God exists outside of time and space and his reality is so much greater than your reality. And so... Jesus appears to be caught in the same dilemma. It's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation. But what I love about Jesus is that Jesus has this way to transcend things. But let's go back to this command, this stoning command. Like, why is it in there? Why, why would God command this? Now, we need to understand this because it makes the story even, even um, more detailed, I guess. The reality is the law says this. It says anyone that is caught in the act of adultery in Exodus um, should be stoned. Now, the devil is in the details because the law is literally anyone that is caught in the act. Now, in Jewish law, in order for anything to be binding, it had to be witnessed by two or three people. That's the only way. Only way. Now, if anyone knows anything about an affair or cheating, chances are very rarely are people ever caught in the act. It's always circumstantial, right? Like I heard something from someone. So, so very rarely does one person ever see anything. Never would two people see anything, let alone three. And so one commentator puts it like this. He says, under the conditions of obtaining evidence in adultery, it would be almost impossible. In other words, the law is there because God wants us to see the heinous nature of adultery. Because there is other sins in the Bible that does not say stone them. But for, 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 for adultery, it says stone them to show us the consequences, to show us the seriousness. But the reason he puts caught in the act is because basically, as this commentator says, it would literally be impossible to catch someone in the act with two or three people. But the commentator does say this. He says it would be impossible unless the situation was a setup. And so what we're seeing right now in this story is that the religious people have set this woman up. They've set this woman up. Now, I've taken a lot of time to explain it, but I really want to set the context. Is everyone following? Yeah. It's, a, it's a setup. That's why John 8, 6 says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? There's, there's no way out of it. I love what happens next. It says, as they were accusing him, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. In other words, these religious people, they're asking him, Jesus, we need an answer. What do you say? 
And I can almost imagine the people there, there's this moment, there's this great tension. And Jesus, instead of answering, he just begins to bend down. And he doesn't say a word. Now, for a lot of people in that situation, maybe this wasn't the most satisfying thing. Jesus, we want an answer. What are you doing? But, but I, I want us to, to see something, especially for Christians. You see, a lot of times as believers, we think that we always need an answer for something. Like if someone asks me a question, I need to answer. When it comes to my political beliefs, I need to stand on a spectrum. Like I need to answer. People need to know what I'm for. People need to know what I'm against. People need to know where I stand. But I wonder what if sometimes people don't need an answer? What if sometimes the best thing we can do is follow the mold of Jesus and just be silent? Be silent. But, but the bigger thing I want us to see is this. The Bible says that he bent down. He bent down. He was silent and he bent down. Another translation says that Jesus stooped. Jesus stooped. Now, the reason this is important is because for someone like Jesus, who was a teacher, a figure, a man, someone who was dignified, to get low, to go low, was seen as undignified. It was not something that you would do. It was not something that would be looked upon with favor. A lot of people would see Jesus bending down as a teacher, as a rabbi, and they'd go, what is he doing? But I believe what Jesus is doing is very, very intentional because I told you I'm talking about what love is. And sometimes you need to understand this. Love is stooping low. Why would he get low? Well, the reason I believe that Jesus would get low is because what I just told you is that this woman was the lowest of the low. In this time, a woman did not have status like they have now. And even more than that, a woman that would commit such an act was seen as the lowest of the low, someone to be treated as an object. Thus, as we see in this story, yet what I love about Jesus is Jesus stoops to her level. Listen, if you're watching online, if you're here this morning, if you do not know about Jesus, let me tell you a little bit about him. Jesus is the kind of person that will meet you in your lowest places. Jesus is the kind of person, because some of us have this idea that says, I'll, I'll come to Jesus when I have my life together. I'll come to Jesus when, when, I, when, I, when I have this sin figured out, when I'm doing better. But what I love about Jesus is that Jesus will meet you in the midst of your mess. Jesus will meet you in addiction. Jesus will meet you in pornography. Jesus will meet you when you're low. And so he stoops down and he comes to a level because that's what love is. Love is to meet you. It's to meet you where you are. Now, the interesting thing in this moment is that when Jesus was not answering, and especially when Jesus got low, the religious people would not have liked this. Like, what is he doing? It's funny, and this is going to sound oxymoronic, especially if you're new to church, but a lot of times when you follow Jesus, it's the religious people that will give you the most grief. This is going to sound weird, but a lot of times when you follow Christ, it's the Christians that will get on you the most. I was listening to an interview with a famous pastor, and one thing that he said, well, he's like, what have you learned in ministry? He's like, what I've learned is I can't believe how mean Christians can be. He's like, that's the biggest thing that I've learned. And so in this moment, the religious people are looking down on Jesus. That's, that's, that's a religious thing to do, right? So much better than those people. I can't believe those people believe that. I can't believe those people would do that, but Jesus stoops low. 
<laughs> Sometimes Christians are the worst. That's the saying I have often, Christians can be the worst. But I want us to see something very interesting. It says that Jesus stooped low and he began to write on the ground with his finger. But verse seven, it says when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. He straightened up and I need us to understand this because Jesus is now looking eye to eye with the religious people. And he's about to speak, but I do not believe that Jesus was speaking with condemnation. I do not believe Jesus was speaking even with malice. What I believe Jesus was doing was in the same way Jesus got low to get on her level, Jesus came up to get on this level as well. Because I need you to understand something about Jesus. Jesus is not just for the lowly ones. Jesus is also for the people that think they're too good. Jesus is also for the religious people. Jesus is also for the people that have their act together. And so I need us to understand this because both sides of the spectrum will often say, I don't think they know Jesus. Guess what? Jesus doesn't exist on a spectrum because Jesus is God. And so Jesus is not left. Jesus is not right. Jesus transcends everything. He's in the middle. Come on, somebody. And I need, I need us to understand this because this is what you need to know about love. Because we live in a world that says, oh, we all love. We don't love. <laughs> love does not pick and choose. Love does not pick and choose. Because we live in a world that's like, I love my right side, or I love my left side. I love the people that think like me, that act like me. Jesus doesn't exist on a spectrum. Jesus will stoop low for the irreligious, and he'll come and meet you eye to eye for the religious, because his heart is for everyone. The Bible says the will of God is that none shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. So Jesus comes up to their level, and he says to them, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I need us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is like, okay. He's like, let, let, let's do this. Let's get this show on the road. Let's stone this woman. He's like, but if we're going to do it, let's do it right. See, in Jewish law, the person that witnessed the crime would be the first one to throw the stone. And so what Jesus is saying, is essentially a call out to the people that set up this whole thing. He says, okay, we're going to do this, but let you, let's, you start, but only you who are without sin. In a sense, only if you've done nothing wrong. And so Jesus knows right away, he's not talking about anger or the pride or the lust that they have deep in their hearts. Jesus is saying, hey, this whole situation, you haven't even done it right, because adultery takes two to tango. There's only one person here. Because you guys aren't worried about justice. You guys aren't actually worried about what is right. And so Jesus says, okay, you can do it, but only, listen to this, you can judge all you want, you can condemn all you want, but only if you yourself have done everything right. And so in this moment, the people begin to cower because they know, oh my gosh, we messed up. You see, what I love about Jesus is that the people brought the woman to Jesus in order to expose her sins, but Jesus has this way of exposing their sins. Can I tell you something, church? If your goal in life, because this is really where our world is trending, right? This is cancel culture. If it's like, hey, I want to just call out people. I need to cancel people. You know what Jesus says? If your life goal is to cancel people, you yourself will be canceled. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. If you are exposing people, listen to this, church, you will be exposed. If you are judging people, you will be judged. Can, can I tell you guys a story real quick? This is like an Instagram inception moment, uh, but it happened a few weeks ago. I have a pastor friend, and uh, he, he's starting a church down in the USA, and uh, he had a worship night. And on the worship night, uh, that was like their first thing they did as a church. And so they took all these fancy pictures, and it looked amazing. And I got flashbacks to when I started this church. And I know like what a moment that is and what it feels like. And then um, on the pictures of the church worship night, um, as you could probably guess, there were some comments. And, uh, and like pretty much the first comment after it was posted, some guy commented. And he said, I don't see uh, proper social distancing. He's like, in fact, I look in these pictures and I actually see some people without masks. And he said, I can't believe you'd be so irresponsible. And I felt really bad for him because like, I'm like, man, like, that kind of sucks like, to have your moment taken away from you. Um, the next week, my, my pastor friend um, who started this church, uh, he posted an Instagram story. And it was really strange on his Instagram story. Um, he posted a picture of another church uh, in the U.S., big gathering, uh, and there was no masks and whatnot, and on his Instagram story, he wrote, um, I can't believe these people, there's no masks, no distancing, this is not what love looks like. And I thought it was really weird that he was putting them on blast for the same thing that he had been put on blast the week before. And so this really irked me. <laughs> and so I decided to go and tell my wife and a few other people, I said, you're not going to believe what this guy did. I said, he put them on blast. I was like, has he no love in his heart? I was like, this makes me so angry. He's the worst. I hope someone's seen the irony. Because what the Lord said to me later this week was, no, 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 you're the worst. Because in turn, you're doing the exact same thing, just on the other end of the spectrum. Spectrum. You see, if we live to call out people, if we live to cancel, if we live to judge, you yourself will be judged. And the Bible says that we have been judged. And we have all fallen short. This is really important um, to add. And it's 11.55. And so to my kids' ministry, we love you. Um, if Andrea, can you give them a heads up? Because I still got some stuff to say. Are you guys okay? Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't say that. And Andrea knows I don't say that unless I might be a little while here. Um, <laughs> but I want us to receive this and I want us to get this. Um, it says that um, in this story, what I want us to see is that nowhere... Is everything okay so far? Nowhere is anything excused. No one has said the religious people are good. No one has said this woman caught in adultery is good. Like, ah, it's all right. She cool. She's felt it. Ah, they're all right. Their pride is good. No one said anything. No one has excused anything. This is really important. Because as we go on, I want to expose a lie that our culture believes. And our culture believes a lie that says everyone is right. And everything's Okay. And there's no such thing as rules. There's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as even spectrums because we're all good people. I'm just a good people. I'm just a good person, right? You guys have heard this one. Ah, Jesus is love. So Jesus accepts everything's okay. Listen, the love of Jesus uh, requires us to love and to accept everyone. But to accept everything does not make allowance for everything. You guys understand what I'm saying? That was a hard truth, so I'll say it again. To accept someone is different than making allowance for someone. We need to see this because it actually will make the whole um, story even better. You see, Jesus never avoids the issue. 
And so the reason he doesn't is because Jesus is doing something and he's about to do something and Jesus is about to revolutionize everything. And so can we just get the TV here ready in a second? Um, so this is what John chapter one says, because for a lot of people, we have this thing that says, um, like, why was there a law, right? Why was the law given? Don't look here just yet. I'm actually going to stand in front of it. So you can't look here just yet. Do not be distracted. So in John chapter one, look to the big screen now. There. There's this question, right? Like, what, what's the purpose of the law? Why are these rules there anyways? Right? We ask this big question. Why is that there anyways? It says, the law was given to us through Moses. In other words, law is right. Law is true. Law is good. It was given through Moses. However, Jesus is here to do something different. Jesus, the Bible says, came to give grace and truth. Grace and truth. Is everyone following? Jesus is grace and truth. And so what I want to do, what I want us to understand is that what love actually looks like, what love actually is, it's both grace and truth. Are you ready to see the diagram now? It's going to be on the little screen and the big screen. This little one is for our church online family. And so I can look at it as well because it's so pretty. (laughs) It's up there as well. So... What I want us to understand is the Bible says this. The Bible says that Jesus is full of grace. Everyone see high grace? And he's full of truth, high truth. That is what love is. What is love? Love is grace and love is truth. Now, what happens, because for a lot of us, we fall onto this spectrum somewhere. And then we come and we say, this is what love is. The issue is for so many of us, we have fragments of what Jesus is like, but we don't have the whole picture. And so I want to go through this graph because I want us to fully understand the love of Christ, but in order to understand it, we we need to contrast it first. So the very first thing is this. We know high grace, high truth is Jesus. Low grace, low truth. The result of that is passivity. And so let me explain what a person with low grace and low truth looks like. That's the person that says, you know what? I don't really care about anything. It's like, yeah, I have people that I work with, but they can do them. I don't care. And for themselves, it's like the reason I don't care is because I don't even care about myself. (laughs) Right? It's like whatever happens, happens. Now, I'm very thankful because for the most part, I think we only live here in moments. It's just moments. I don't think most of us live in passivity. But I would argue that many of us have moments. We have moments where we have no truth or no grace. And we're just passive. But I want us to understand the spectrums where I believe most of us live. Now, for a lot of us, and let's start with Christians. Because this is where a lot of Christians live. We live in the place of high truth. And it's like, yes, Jesus was truth. The law of Moses. But where we fall short is that we have low grace. And the problem with high truth and low grace is that the results are to be judgmental. And this is where Christians fall. And this is where I would wager to guess most people that love Jesus, this is our biggest place where we go. This is where I go. Do you, do you want to know why we go to this place? Because the reality is if things are true, especially if something is wrong, it's really hard for us to step back and say nothing. Right? If someone is on a path of self-destruction, how can I say nothing? 
And so what happens is we often hit people with, well, the Bible says. My brother, you haven't read the Bible. You haven't seen what Jesus says. But, but listen, here's the problem with high truth and low grace. You can be right, but still be wrong. Can I give you a practical example? This might hurt some people's feelings. You guys know Black Lives Matter? For a lot of people, I'm going to say it because the Spirit's put this on my heart. For a lot of people, they say this, because there's the movement and then there's the organization. If you don't know this, I'll educate you. And for a lot of people, the organization Black Lives Matter, um, it stands for some things that, I'll be honest, um, as Christians, we're against it, right? There's certain things. You can look it up after. And so what happens is that it's really easy to say, high truth, come on, this organization stands for things that I'm against. Therefore, I'm against everyone that says everything. Even if they mention it, I'm done. Out of here. And so what happens is we end up having low grace and we end up being judgmental is because we'll, we'll, we'll judge a whole movement based on what is true without having any grace. And oftentimes what happens is the wrong people get caught in the crossfire because we're so busy being over here. And so what I'm trying to get us to understand is that you can actually be right and wrong at the same time. And this is why Christians get in trouble because we think we're right, but we're also wrong and we end up over here. Jesus is neither here nor here. Now, for the 21st century Canadian, this is like the non-church person, uh, most of them, I would say, live over here. And over here is this, it's low truth, but high grace. And so what low truth says is like, hey, there is no such thing as right or wrong. You do you, right? If you feel it, do it. If you got that urge, if she's married, it's all good. You do you, right? There's no truth. It's just low truth, high grace. But what happens, and it's funny and why I always call it our society and our culture is because we think we live in the love culture the culture that loves everyone and loves everything. But what happens is that the truth is, if there is grace but no truth, you're actually just enabling people. I'll tell you a story. When I was in elementary school, I had a friend, and I was probably like eight, nine, or 10 years old, um, and I went to his house for lunch, and um, I, I, he was a cool guy, and he always got sent to the principal's office, and he was never scared, and so I always thought he's kind of cool. Because um, like for me, like, and listen, I'm a funny guy. You guys know that, right? <laughs> Like, I'm hilarious. Oh. But, like, in, in school, like, in school, like, I wanted to crack more jokes, but, like, I was scared, like, to go to the principal's office because, like, I had parents at home, and I was just, I didn't know what would happen. And so for him, like, he was always getting sent down, and he'd strut down there with a smile. Like, he was not scared. Um, and so I went to his house for lunch one day when I was, like, 10 years old. And uh, I remember we got to talking, and what I realized really quickly is that his life was so different than ours, than mine. The first thing is I went to his house, I was like nine years old, and no one was there. I was like, where are your parents? He's like, I don't know. I was like, you're allowed to be here without parents? And we got to talking, and one thing I also found out is that he didn't have a bedtime. I was like, you don't have a bedtime? I go to bed at 7.30. I was like, even if it's light outside, and I'm begging my mom, like, I'm still going to bed. And so what I found out, and basically what he said, he's like, yeah, bro. He's like, and I don't think people said bro back then, but... He's like, honestly, he's like, my parents let me do whatever I want. And I'm like, yo, this guy's got the coolest parents in the world. Like, these guys must really love him. Listen, after, uh, after elementary school, 
Um, I lost contact with him, um, but then a friend, uh, he sent me uh, a story, a link in the Edmonton Sun, Edmonton Journal, uh, of this said friend. And in the article, um, this is when he was 20 years old. Um, he had just been arrested, and he had $500,000 worth of drugs, paraphernalia, guns um, on him. And uh, he was sentenced to 10 and a half years in prison at the age of 20. And as I was reading the article, one of the most fascinating things is it said where the bus took place uh, was at his parents' house. Now listen for a second, because I, I don't want you to understand or think that I'm saying he has bad parents or terrible parents. I don't believe that at all. I actually think that his parents love them, love him. But the problem is, I need us to see this because we do this all the time. We buy this lie that says in order for me to actually love someone, like I can't, I can't tell them they're wrong. I can't push them in a direction. So we have high grace and we have low truth, but the reality is we end up just enabling them. These are the three quadrants. And I hope I've painted the picture of how our society, we fall in these quadrants, but the beauty of Jesus, all of these things have their downfall, but the reason we are attracted to them is because they have fragments of Jesus. It's fragments of grace, fragments of truth. But Jesus only exists in one, and that is in grace, and that is in truth. Come on, somebody. And so, I really want to break this down. Can You can push this away, because I want us to understand the rest of the story. Because when we understand that Jesus is grace and that Jesus is truth, it changes everything. Because that is what love is. Love is grace, and love is truth. And so back to the story, Jesus says again, Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he began to write. In other words, he's like, all right, perfect people, where are you at? Here's some truth. Here's the truth. You want to judge? Do it if you yourself are perfect. Let's get the perfect people. Let's get the perfect people here. But I love this, verse 9. It says, at this, those who heard that began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. So there's this picture, right? Jesus says, okay, perfect people, come forward. But instead of coming forward, one by one they leave. From the oldest to the youngest. And then there's this picture and it's, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. Why is Jesus only there? Because Jesus is the only one who fully embodies grace and truth. Because Jesus is the only one who is perfect. Because Jesus is the only one who is without sin, without blemish. He's the only one who's good enough. He's the only one who has the right to judge. And so there's this scene and now the rightful judge is there, the one who is perfect. And the one who we've known is guilty. Based on the scale of truth, she's guilty. And I need you to understand this. Based on the scale in your life, it has been weighed. It has, been, it has come to the conclusion, you too are guilty. You're judgmental. You're angry. You're easily annoyed. You're, 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 you're mean. You're guilty. But the Bible says this in verse 10. It says, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I love this because what the Bible says is that Jesus stooped down to meet her. 
That's grace. But the Bible says that when Jesus met there, Jesus will meet you in your deepest and darkest places. But when Jesus meets you there, Jesus loves you too much to keep you there. And so the Bible says he's straightened up. And I can imagine in this moment, this woman for the very first time in her life, maybe ever, there was a man that was looking at her and he was not looking at her to get something out of her. He saw her for who she actually was. And I can only imagine that she began to straighten up. Because when grace and truth is fully embodied, it takes us somewhere. And so she begins to straighten up. And he says, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. Jesus says this. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Here is love personified. The only one who is grace and truth. The only one who is worthy to render judgment. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now I need you to understand if you haven't seen it so far. You are in this story. You are that woman. You are that religious person. But the beauty is that Jesus is the main character. And the beauty is that this line he says to her, neither do I condemn you, it's not solely for her. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 8, it says, therefore, there is no condemnation, come on somebody, for those who are in Christ Jesus. The beauty is the one who is perfect, the one who is grace, the one who is truth, says the same thing to you, neither do I condemn you. This is what you deserve, that's the truth. But the grace, the high grace, is that Jesus has let us off the hook. He's let us off the hook. You're free. That's why the Bible says who the Son sets free is free indeed. It's because you're free. And so he declares to the woman, I I do not condemn you, therefore go and leave your life of sin. Because Jesus loves you too much to keep you anywhere. Listen to this. This is why we need high truth. Because if those places, if those things, if those sins were good for you, Jesus would never need to meet you there. He would never need to take you out of there. But the beauty of high grace and high truth is when they work together, the result is salvation. The grace of Jesus looks at you and says, you are not guilty You're free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Come on, somebody. Let's stand up for a second. This morning, this story was for each and every one of us. It's for the people that need Jesus. It's for the people that need to make that decision to reach out, to grab that hand and say, God, I want to accept that gift. I want to accept your love. Listen, if that's you this morning, with every single head bowed, every single eye closed, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to Jesus. And it's so simple. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's for the 13th time. You're saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I'm not good enough. I'm messed up. But thank you, God, for your gift. Thank you that you're going to take me somewhere. If you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, we want to give you that option. So with every head bowed, I'm just going to count backwards from three. When I get to one, just show me your hand. Every single person in this room is praying right now that's made that decision before. In three, two, one, just show me your hand. You just want to give your life to Jesus. Thank you. 
Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to that message. If you want more information, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, head over to kingdomchurch.ca and fill out a connect card. We would love to get in contact with you. Until next time, take care.